Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. On this episode of Reaganism, Dr. Janet Tran, director of the Center for Civics, Education, and Opportunity at the Reagan Institute, sits down with Gerard Robinson, vice president for education at the Advanced Studies in Culture Foundation. Gerard Robinson, former commissioner of education for the state of Florida and secretary of education for the Commonwealth of Virginia, discusses his leadership journey, pluralistic options in our education system, and the transformative power of education. Finally, Janet and Gerard discuss civics, particularly building character and bridging our racial and political divides. If you enjoy the conversation, make sure to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts or watch this episode in video form on youtube.com slash Reagan Foundation. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Reaganism. I'm your guest host, Janet Tran, director of the Center for Civics, Education and Opportunity at the Ronald Reagan Institute. And today, I feel incredibly fortunate to delve into the mind of Gerard Robinson, Vice President of Education at the Advanced Studies in Culture Foundation at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. Make that into an acronym. Gerard, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be with you. So previously, you have served as a Commissioner of Education in the state of Florida, the Secretary of Education for the Commonwealth of Virginia, and other roles include executive director for the Center of Advancing Opportunity, director of the president of the Black Alliance for Educational Options, and a resident fellow at AEI, the American Enterprise Institute. And of course, you were kind enough to moderate at our RISE Summit in 2019. And we would love to have you back as soon as this world reopens. I will join you. I look forward to it. Well, let's start with our leadership journey. We, we think about this work a lot at the Center for Civics, Education, and Opportunity, and we have the privilege of encountering and working with really great leaders, uh, such as yourself, and we're invested in how leaders are developed, um, and yours has undoubtedly been a really impactful journey. So maybe let's begin in medias rest with your current role at the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture, and what work is driving your inquiry at this moment? No, great questions. And again, always glad to join you and to support the work of the Ronald Reagan Institute. So I live and work in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture is a research center here at the University of Virginia, founded 26 years ago by Dr. James Hunter, who is a sociologist and the author of Culture War. Um, now, he's the author of several books, but Culture Wars Wars is really the first one I'm putting on the map. And, you know, fast forward to today, that book was in the early 90s. Um, you know, cultural worlds of wars are, are finding their way into a lot of our conversation. So here we focus on K-12 education uh, across the board, traditional public schools, homeschooling, private schooling to figure out how do we use institutions of learning to inculcate in moral ecology and character education. We also work with uh, professors in arts and science, in um, the humanities, schools of education, even law school. And so we're doing great work there. But the real big push is it's very something, um, so much of what Reagan wanted to do. Uh, he believed that ideas uh, matter and that as a nation created from ideals about freedom and liberty and the idea of the human pursuit, we want to do the same thing with the focus on character education. So uh, glad to be in this position and uh, it's one that I enjoy mentioning. 
When we think of your career, it almost at this point seems like you've planned and the path was very linear. And of course, that isn't true. But maybe let's go back in time a bit and uh, start at the beginning of your journey. And how did you build these interests? How did you get here? Uh, What led to this current role? So 30 years ago, last month, I began my career in education as a fifth grade school teacher at the Marcus Garvey School in Los Angeles. Like you, you also work uh, in the LA area. Um, I had recently at that time graduated from Howard University in Washington, moved back to LA. Uh, In fact, Marcus Garvey School is a three block walk from St. John the Evangelist where I attended elementary school back in the 70s. And I really chose um, elementary school for two reasons. Number one, when I was an undergraduate student, I volunteered a lot. I was a reading coach for elementary middle school students who were involved in DC, DC public school program. I worked with a local church who had a tutorial program, and I worked with a program called Project 2000, which was uh, created by a group of professionals who went to, at that time, one of the toughest elementary schools in Southeast DC. And they said, we're gonna make you guys a promise. If you stay in school, get good grades, be a good person, all those great things. When you graduate in the year 2000, we'll pay for you to go to college. And so I was able to recruit men and women from Howard University to serve as tutors. So all of those experiences really pushed me toward um, my calling, which I believe is to work in education. And so while my roommates uh, went on and made a ton more money than me on uh, Wall Street and engineering and business, I decided to become a teacher. And so 30 years ago, I started there with no idea that I would end up where I am now. But just the belief that education is my calling, I've just allowed that calling to flourish through different manifestations. Well, it's a lucrative career in many other facets. So uh, at least I feel that way. Um, You know, based on your own experiences, uh, attending Howard, um, working with teacher leaders and, you know, eventually working in school systems, You've seen uh, leaders, whether they have positions of power or whether they have chosen to serve, um, you know, what are some of those key qualities of a leader or what stands out to you or what are some areas in which you, you try to emulate? I've been able to assume positions of leadership because I had good mentors. So I think one aspect of leadership is having someone who you can learn from, both the good, the bad and the ugly. You know, I had mentors in college in the nonprofit sector, uh, but also uh, in, in, in schools that I worked in. So mentorship gives you an opportunity to learn from other people's success and their mistakes. And so when I talk to young people about leadership, I said, just stop where you are right now, walk 25 years into the future, and then walk backward and take a look on the ground and see all the carnage that's there. What could you do to have avoided that? by you know, walking backwards. And now knowing that when you look forward 25 years, what you can do. And that's something I learned from mentors of mine in different areas. Uh, number two, leadership is about reading widely. I read books written by people on the left and the right. I read books written by about uh, education by people who I totally, I mean, totally disagree with conclusions and the assumptions they make about urban education, about choice. Uh, about the role of government in school reform. And I read people who I like uh, a lot, and everybody in the middle. So I think reading widely uh, across disciplines uh, is also important. I think the third thing about leadership that is really important is understanding servant leadership. Uh, The goal is to lead people, but also to lead in ways you wish 
you would be led by people who are in positions of power. You know, unfortunately, I run into people in positions of leadership who use it as an ego trip and who use it as a way to exercise their own personal professional demons. Um, I like working with people who see you as a vessel um, to be poured into um, and to be cultivated. So servant leadership is a way that I, uh, at least I'd like to believe that I lead and have learned well in, in, in that, that type of environment. Those three categories are great ways to organize your thinking and um, all research based, by the way. Uh, uh, let's let's go back to mentors, though. You, you mentioned they gave you great advice. And, you know, we, we all understand the importance of a role of a mentor. Um, I'm, I'm curious if they're if you want to share any of the advice they uh, they gave to you and and uh, pass it on. Yeah. So Mr. Raymond Roney was a major mentor of mine in community college. Uh, he's the first person who really challenged me to think about my future. I told him at the time that I was a student at El Camino Community College, um, not for academic purposes. I did it for one sole reason. I wanted to tell my friends who were at UCLA and Berkeley and Air Force Academy that when they returned home for Christmas vacation, that I too was in college. But the reality is I was academically unprepared to attend any of those schools. And so he said, just because this is where you start today doesn't mean it's where you have to end up tomorrow. And for about an hour, once a month for two years, he invited me into his office. And the times I thought about dropping out of community college, because frankly, I was too stupid to be in college. He was the one who spoke truth and encouragement into my life. And so his thing was where you start off today uh, isn't a preview of where you're going to end up in the future. So I think that was important. Elaine Moore was another important community college um, uh, mentor of mine. Uh, she's the one that really pushed the idea of thinking about leaving California to go to an historically black college or university. Howard University was my choice. She said, pick a school with a proven track record of leadership. And so when I think of Howard University, the number of generals that we produce, college presidents, elected officials, judges, still one of the major institutions in the country with people with PhDs. So talking about leadership was great. Um, I think one in terms of the business sector, there was a gentleman who had come through my line and uh, he invited me to his house one day for dinner. And he worked in corporate America and was talking to me about interest. And he said, Gerard, here's one question you got to answer as a young man. Do you want money or do you want power? I said, actually, I never thought about it. Can I have both? And he laughed. He said, it's rare to have both, but you have to choose one. And so he said, a lot of people go into politics because they want power. A lot of people go into business because they want money. And there's ways of meshing the two because we have some, for example, Republicans who supported Reagan uh, who had power and money. Um, but I use that as a good example to make my own decision saying I want wealth. And the difference is that wealth, as you alluded to, isn't solely financial capital, but it's human capital, it's a, it's a frame of thinking, it's a mindset. While my roommates, some of them are millionaires now, I'm wealthier there and they, than they are based upon where I had a chance to live and grow, my experiences, my family, and just meeting people from different walks of life. So those are just three examples of uh, what people share with me. I think it was pretty helpful. Well, thank you for sharing. You know, your, your experiences uh, at the community college uh, make me think that when a student has an unfulfilled uh, promise and doesn't live up to their full potential, the ripple effects are astounding. And if had you decided or had you not had those mentors step in and say you are worthy of a, an, a world-class education at Howard, so many things would have changed because you actually served students uh, at very large school systems and you worked both as a classroom teacher and a mentor to students. 
and led these complex school systems at the state level. So I'm curious if you could reflect on the main differences um, when you're making this difference, answering the call between the view on the ground as a classroom teacher and the aerial view as you got further and further away from those one-on-one interactions with students and teachers. If it was a tough decision to move from the classroom to policy, and it wasn't one that I thought was initially difficult, but it was shared to me by a former congressman who fact who died this year, uh, Representative Alcee Hastings, who was a congressmember in Florida. At the time that he came to visit me at the Marcus Garvey School, I believe he was still a federal judge. And we were talking, he had visited my classroom, we went through all the, the rituals of showing what our students uh, could recite. And he said, you're doing a good job, young man. And I said, you know, judge, this isn't rocket science. We have high expectations. We believe that families have a voice in their child's education. We believe supporting students and meeting them where they are. He said, yeah, 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 it all sounds good. He said, what you really want to know is how is it that you're getting great results with students here? And then maybe eight blocks away, students from the same neighborhood, same socioeconomic uh, households are getting different results. I said, yeah, you're right. He said, well, that's a public policy question. I said, what do you mean? He said, right now you're working with 30 students and that's a micro view and that's important. But if you wanna get a macro view for 30 million plus students, then that's a macro view you've got to look at from public policy. So if you wanna know how to spread what you're doing here at this school or Crenshaw High School down the street, who've taken some you know, hard-served students and having those students equally go to Berkeley, Stanford, USC and other schools, you got to figure that out from public policy. He says, but you got to make a choice. And so I decided that I would apply, was accepted, I think one of 17 people in the country for a one-year fellowship in the California State Senate. And I thought what would be a one-year fellowship just to get my toes wet in public policy to then come back into the classroom led to 29 plus years moving forward. So it was, again, someone having a conversation about macro and micro uh, who had seen it himself and deciding, hmm, my calling again is education, one manifestation is public policy. It's interesting, the evolution of, of where your journey has led you right now. And, um, you know, I think that uh, leading these school systems in particularly through this pandemic, it has been the most trying of times and years. And you've been out of it for a while. And mm-hmm. I'm sure you have that deep empathy as uh, they all forged forward and did the best they could with what information they had. You know, do you have any advice for any of our current state chiefs uh, as they think about how to support students and ensure that resources are are given equitably? And um, the fact that, you know, perhaps even rebuilding in a a better capacity so that our students have opportunities that are, uh, you know, unseen uh, prior to the pandemic. So I'd recommend that they take a look at the blueprint that was released yet last year by the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, me, um, Rick Hess, John Bailey, and several others, including some former chiefs, uh, got together from both the left and the right and uh, put together a blueprint on what schools and systems, state and local, could use to kind of walk through the pandemic. So that's number one. Uh, number two, I have here at the Institute uh, a, a show called In Character, where I interview teachers, educators, principals, social entrepreneurs. Well, this month I interviewed four principals, two at a public school, two at a private school, and four uh, teachers, two at a public school, two at a private school, on what it was like reopening schools uh, in the pandemic after, for some, being out 
for several months, some for over a year. So I say, just take a look at uh, what people who are in the classroom have to say. Because when you're a state chief, yes, you're far removed from the day-to-day classroom work. So that's another place. You know, and then third is I would take a look at some of the articles in newspaper, art, well, I'll take articles, newspaper articles and journals written in the late 1920s um, by academics who talked about what it was like during the pandemic in Philadelphia and New York and Los Angeles. I mean, that was a pandemic with deaths galore at that time. And schools had to go through some of the similar challenges. They didn't have the technology, of course, that we do. But I would just recommend go back and take a look and see what they did and what they thought about to see what, what things remain the same, possibly learn some lessons from them. And then as we move forward, try to avoid some of the mistakes uh, that they made. So I'm hearing grounded in experience, listen, try to get as close to the ground as possible. And then, you know, perhaps grounding yourself in some history as well. Exactly. That's fair advice. You know, something that uh, we absolutely experienced during the pandemic was the fact that school does not have to be uh, the four walls of a classroom, doesn't have to be 730 to 3.30, doesn't have to be the same system in which we uh simply just tradition has uh, has told us it would be. So, you know, you've been an early supporter of the pluralistic options uh, available in many other countries, and you've been a supporter of pluralistic options in our own education system, whether that's vouchers or education savings accounts um, to charter schools. So in your view, how do these options or innovations, how, how do they fit into the American public education system? So American education uh, is a pluralistic system, even though the majority of our students are in public schools. Even within the public school system, we often overlook the options in place. So take, for example, the state of Washington. Uh, Some years ago, its state Supreme Court uh, ruled unconstitutional its charter law. And one of the reasons they did so is because they said it didn't really offer great opportunities And what I noted in an op-ed that I wrote in response to it is that for a state who says they want to provide more opportunities but stop charters because students were moving possibly across school lines, that same state had a law to allow students to go to school in Idaho and in Oregon. And that was part of their public school choice program, which was in place before the charter school law. That's an aspect of a pluralistic approach. Um, many states right now have open enrollment laws, which allow students to cross over zip code boundaries to attend schools that they have a better curriculum, better after school programs, or other points. Those things are in place. Long before we had charters, we had magnet schools. And magnet schools are public choice schools. Some of the best high schools in the country, in fact, are charter schools. I mean, charter, I should say, are magnet schools. And we have uh, examination schools and selection academies, uh, some of those older than some of our public high schools. So we've had it for a long time, but with the advent of the school choice conversation, something that Ronald Reagan um, supported during his administration in the early 80s, all of a sudden we thought that public options were bad, or we thought that using public money to support private religious schools was a bad thing. Well, when Reagan talked about vouchers, people overlooked the fact that before he was elected to office, that funds under the 1965 Elementary and Secondary Education Act through Title I and Title II had been going to religious schools for decades. And guess what? Still do. So before vouchers, public money went there. 
So for me, I think we have that system. It's just that we've chosen to politicize a few things. Charters and vouchers seem uh, seem to be two examples. Um, Speaking of vouchers, I was actually in Milwaukee uh, last week uh, for the celebration of the 30th anniversary of the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program. It is the country's first urban-based voucher program created in part through bipartisanship. You had uh, uh, Representative Polly Williams, a black inner city Democrat who partnered with Tommy Thompson, a Republican, what they would call an outstate governor, who said that the students in Milwaukee, most of them low income, most of them African American, that there was a fast track to prison, a fast track to dropping out of school, just a fast track to all the bad things that we thought weren't great. And they decided to come together and create a program that people said would just just lead to the ruin of the Milwaukee school system that, you know, take money away that students wouldn't learn. Well, fast forward 30 years, over 40,000 students are in the program. There are more cities other than Milwaukee who are in the program. The number of those students who've gone to college, to the military, who started businesses, started families, research has shown less likely to be involved in the criminal justice system, more likely to be involved in civic programs. And so, I was excited to be a part of that for two years and I lived in Milwaukee and worked with Dr. Howard Fuller at Marquette University. So um, we've always had a pluralistic system. We've had private schools longer than public schools, but we only tend to focus on vouchers, charters, tax credits, education savings account as the boogie person uh, in today's society, when in fact it's just the latest articulation of what we call educational opportunity in America. So all of this sounds reasonable enough and uh, some would argue even compelling. So why do you think there is such a visceral response to something slightly different or options that do give students uh, better opportunities? And are we waiting for perfect uh, before we take make any innovations in our education system? Well, when you introduce something new to the system, there's initial pushback from bureaucracy because that's just the nature of the administrative state. So with vouchers, they say you're going to lead to resegregating schools. I said, so let me see. Milwaukee is, at that time, had 100,000 school students in the system. I'd say roughly 85% of them were African-American, others Hispanic, Asian, white population less than 10%. So a voucher program is going to resegregate a city that's already racially identifiable yet right. So that was number one. And then they said, okay, we can't use that. Then they said, well, it's going to take money away from the public school system. I said, okay, in 1991, you had approximately 100,000 students and a $700 million budget. Today, 2021, Milwaukee Public Schools, they have 71,000 students and a billion dollar budget. So wait a minute. You had 100,000 students and 700 million. Now you have 71,000 students and a billion dollar budget. So in fact, you have more money for fewer students. And so it did not destroy the financial backbone of the private school system. Third, they said that there should be, we should maintain a separation of church and state. The constitution does not allow this. Well, we know the word or the phrase separation of church and state appears nowhere in the constitution. We know that language in part comes from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to some Danbury Baptists in Connecticut, uh, early 1800s. Uh, in fact, he was actually in France when debating the nuances of the constitution. So that wasn't the case. Again, we've, we've given money in the terms of a, a form of Pell Grant 
to Georgetown University, Catholic University, a number, you know, yeshiva. So we've done that for years. And then the last point is it's going to hurt the students who go there. It's going to hurt them to leave a system where they likely would have dropped out to come to a choice program to drop in. Now, I'm not saying that the voucher program is perfect because it's not. I'm seeing some of those programs close and they should have closed. But I think we've just made it political in part because it's something that Republicans support. And therefore, if it's a Republican-driven program, somehow it's got to be a segregation-type program. Somehow it's got to be anti-teacher and somehow it has to be anti-union. There's some who support uh, the, first, the latter two opportunities, but... You know, it's, it's politics at play. 30 years into the game, also charters, charters are 30 years old as well. It just hasn't played out as much as people would think. There just has to be room for some pragmatic iteration to ensure that we are trying new things. We can't simply rely on a system that's antiquated. And we all, I think a collective uh, coalition agree that the system is antiquated. And yet any sort of a push for change just you know, drives these uh, visceral reactions. So interesting, uh, interesting feedback from you there. I think uh, both of us really see education as transformative. And uh, here at the Reagan Institute Center for Civics Education Opportunity, we think of education as transformative, whether you receive that education at four months old, four years old, or 40 years into your incarceration. And you've been invested in the space of criminal justice reform and prison education reentry programs. Uh, in fact, recently, you had the opportunity to edit a story to tell uh, the importance of education during incarceration, as told by 22 men and women who know firsthand. Now, clearly, it is not easy to get a post-secondary uh, education, even in normal circumstances. Um, but these young men and women and these older men and women uh, share their stories. And I'd love to know what you learned from their stories of re about resilience, about systemic challenges and barriers, um, you know, perhaps share some insight that you, you had as you edited these uh, incredibly inspiring stories. So my journey to writing that uh, edited report really began in 1989 when I was in D.C. at Howard and a young lady was looking for mentors to work in a program called HITS. And HITS is an acronym for uh, High Intensity Training Seminar. And it was really focused on young men in D.C., mostly African-American and El Salvadorian men who were between the ages of 16 and 19 and were already involved in the criminal justice system. So a forward-thinking Superior Court judge to this day, I don't know his or her name, they say, we're going to um, you know, tie you to mentors in the city, in college, in government, private sector, military, elsewhere. And so for two years, I worked with these young men. And you know they come from the homes you would expect, single parent, um, all the challenges. But the one thing they all had in common was a challenge with reading. And they all said, I wish I would have learned how to read, how to comprehend, and that would have made a big difference. And so I said, very, very interesting. Well, fast forward to 2021, this report comes out where we have 11 men and 11 women. And all of them entered prison for different reasons. Murder all the way to theft, all the way to, let's just say everything in between. And a number of them talk about their academic challenges. In fact, several of them arrived to prison without a high school diploma or a GED. You know, in California, at one point, nearly 70% of the people who were in state prison had not finished. In fact, 
could not read above the eighth grade level. And that was whether you had a high school diploma or not. So there was a literacy challenge that didn't even align with whether or not you had a high school Correlations diploma. Correlations, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And so you had people who were in prison who earned a GED. Uh, some earned an associate's degree. Uh, some said, you know what, I don't want a degree, I want a credential. So they earned a license or a certificate uh, for job training. Some, in fact, actually earned uh, a bachelor's degree. And so for them, education was transformative and it did three things. Number one, it gave them, some of them, their first ever sense of worth. Uh, they had grown up in households with physical sexual abuse, um, chronic alcoholism uh, around them and being told that frankly they were dumb and that they shouldn't be in school. So that's why some of them dropped out. And so for them it was a self-worth uh, point. Number two, some of them in fact are parents and they needed to come out and become the economic breadwinner for the son or daughter or children. And so there, uh, there's a mom and dad, there's actually a mom daughter team that's in the book. And they talk about being in jail and what it was like to say, listen, I've got to go home and help my children with their homework. And it was just powerful to hear one mom said, you know, at one point, I realized that my children had a better education than me. So I had to educate myself, went through a program in Baltimore and, uh, and is now a mentor in that program to other women. So it was about how do I help my children minimize probability of falling into my step? Because if you have an incarcerated parent, you're three times more likely to go to prison than someone who's not. The third thing it did was to give them an opportunity to do something once they left prison. So with approximately 2.3 million people who are incarcerated, 95% are gonna leave at some point. In fact, you know, within this 12 month period, nearly 650,000 people will leave prison. The challenge is 75% likely will return to prison within five years. And so those who actually enroll in education programs, and it's just not a baccalaureate program or an associate's program, it's also GED certificate vocational training. They're less likely to return than their colleagues who have not. And so for those who are, and it was one guy uh, in the story, and I didn't use any names, but um, for protection of their victims, but also protection for their own privacy. You know, one gentleman talks about being in prison, enrolling in a program sponsored by uh, the Darton uh, Business School here at UVA and saying that, you know what? I never had a credit card or a bank account before I went to prison. I didn't know much about accounting. Well, he went through the program, was able to use his education to get the judge to release his, um, to release the date that he had to leave prison. He got out of prison, started his own business. He purchased his second car. His credit score at the time of the writing, I believe, was 726. Uh, that's higher than the national average of people who are in prison. Uh, you know, I was looking at that, looking at my own score, and said, hmm, I some advice from him. Not at all. <laughs> um, he got into a healthy relationship. He was able to reconnect with his children. And so the third part is, what will this do for me on the outside? So it's, it, it's, you know, it's powerful stories, 22 all in, in play. Um, you know, you know, I cried actually reading some of those stories because it was just, of course. just human tragedy on display. But we can all at least have a better idea. Now, I support education in prison. I tell people, you know, I'm not, you know, soft on crime. You do the crime, you do the time. But I'm also smart about time. If they're going to come out, if they pay their debt to society, what can we do to minimize the probability that they'll be more productive? And for me, at least, education in one form or another is a pathway. And that's what the story is all about.
Right. Grace is not weakness. So I think that's a, that's a great way of looking at that. You know, I, I feel like society, we have such a, a scarcity mindset uh, about, you know, if I give to you, there will be none left for me. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult sometimes to garner the support necessary to say that we do want to provide an education to incarcerated individuals. You've given, you know, some data and statistics about recidivism that's compelling. Um, but what else have you learned about the implementation of programs such as Second Chance Pell, um, experimental sites initiatives, and why should we as a society invest here? We know the heartstring story. So people like you and I, we, we're drinking the Kool-Aid. We believe in this. But what about the uh, effects for a greater society as a whole? So the Second Chance Pale Experimental Sites Initiative was created uh, under President Obama. Uh, he used the uh, ESI, ESI Experimental Sites Initiative uh, protocol to say we're going to give 12,000 men and women an opportunity through a $30 million grant to pursue a certificate, associate degree, or bachelor's degree. Uh, it kicked off in 27, uh, 2016 with uh, initially 62 schools, uh, public, private, uh, both of them, of course, are two-year colleges. Um, so that was during the Obama administration when, excuse me, President Trump moved into office. Uh, his Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, also supported this initiative. Uh, while she was there, she increased the program by another 67 schools. Um, so as of right now, we have approximately 131 schools that are in the program, both public and private in uh, over 30 states. Uh, the Vera Institute for Justice in New York received the uh, received a grant, really a contract from the US Department of Education to be the technical provider of, uh, of services to the schools. You know, their research shows that over 7,000 people have received some type of credential uh, through the program. And so, you know, the numbers are moving in the right direction. Prior to Trump leaving office, he signed into law uh, as part of the stimulus bill. A, um, um, in the law, it basically banned for the first time the Pell Grant ban or got rid of the Pell, ban, uh, Pell Grant ban. So right now uh, in Congress, you have people who've been recently appointed to a rule committee. Uh, in Congress. In fact, a couple of them, uh, Dr. Um, Andrea, uh, his name will come to me, his last, Andreas, he'll kill me, forget his name. He's a professor at Howard University. He was formerly incarcerated, earned a PhD, MBA, now he's a professor, he's on that committee. So that's gonna move forward and uh, we're gonna get an opportunity to see what lessons we can learn. And the reasons I say we can learn is because when we talk about prison education, we talk about it as if it's prison education, when it's really adult education, inside of prison. And several years ago, the average college student no longer was under 25, no longer lived on campus. And sometimes was caring for a loved one and had a part-time job. So the whole idea that the college student that we knew when we were in school, it looks very different. In fact, it looks more in age and sometimes experience of people who are incarcerated. So I think higher ed will learn lessons about teaching, learning, pedagogy, motivation, from people who teach inside of prison. So I think for, you know, in a very unique way, we can learn something from that. Yeah, and I think that's really key as we we move away from a more punitive approach um, to perhaps the time being something of value and where we are bringing people back to their full potential. And hopefully that is what serving time is. Um, You know, I wanna really take some time to explore 
you know, one of my or our favorite subjects and perhaps, uh, you know, this uh, engagement in civic life would actually prevent people from falling into a life of crime. And uh, you've worked in this space for quite some time, um, coming at it from different angles. And currently you're, you're incubating a network of schools around the concept of character. And character is central, or depending on who you speak to, adjacent to civics. Um, but I'd love for you to share with us the theory of change behind this project and where you are with the concept. So James Hunter and Ryan Olson, who's the president of the Institute, wrote a book called The Content of Their Character. And in the book, they looked at 10 school sectors, uh, traditional, public, um, public urban, public rural, charter, private schools, religious and non-religious, Muslim, Catholic, pedagogical schools, homeschooling, and the 10th is a little bit of a mix of, of others. And they said, through these 10 school sectors, we looked and interviewed 10,000, well, actually 3,000 parents and 3,000 teens. So it's the largest survey of its type in the world to take a look at character education and formation. And there were 95 plus questions that we asked parents, the teens, and then our team in partnership with Gallup did a deeper dive into focus groups, visit school visits and meeting. So in the book, we have chapters written by different scholars to talk about the charter school, the, the rural school, the um, uh, Muslim school. And so when James Hunter talks about character, we talk about attachment, autonomy, and discipline. Um, you know, the ability to say no when the temptation is to say yes for the wrong thing. Having an uh, autonomy, being in the right place at the right time to make decisions that you think are important based upon how you see, see things before a bigger point. And the whole idea of, of attainment is to say that we need to attain something bigger than ourselves. There's a societal good and there's a way for us to go into it. And under those three, there are more work. But what James is saying, which I believe a lot in my own life affirms this, is that schools are not the sole inculcator of character. It is one of many groups that play a role Family is important. Faith traditions are important. For those who don't have a traditional faith tradition, a belief system is important. Your friends, your after-school network, sports. There's a whole society that wraps itself around you. And so what role do they play in character formation? So since we work in the school sector, we had an opportunity to bring together 12 um, principals and researchers from across the country to Charlottesville for a two-and-a-half-day event where we walked them through our research on character education. In fact, we, in the last couple of months, released a report called The Context of Their Character, which is at the actual um, survey results, which you can find on our webpage. I'll make sure I send you a copy so you can share it. But they can go through the report and actually see what families had to say and students about patriotism, civics, grit. How do people think about street smarts? What do they think about the economy? What role does religion play? I mean, it's just fascinating information. But we gave it to principals because I said, whether you think so or not, these are your students. As much as you say, no, nah, these are my students. No, nah, these are my parents. They are. There's probably a 5% variable yes or no difference. But we'll find out. So it was good to hear the principals say, you know what? Now that I'm looking at the 35 ranked results on what parents say they want, you know, schools to inculcate to their children what they, what teens themselves wanted. They said, you know what, to be honest, I'm not sure I really know what my parents think. I have an idea, but it's not scientific. So uh, since that meeting, I've actually had a chance to travel to visit a few schools 
other leaders we had. I'm going to take another visit at the end of this month and just meet with their teachers and others just to talk about what character looks like to talk about surveys on character education and what we can do. And it's something that you know, Reagan talked about. Now, naturally, when you hear character, people think it's a conservative thing. Character really transcends party. Um, King, who was not a Republican, said, you know, we should judge people by the content of their character, the color of their skin. And if you read some of Reagan's work, he talked about the character. Well, Clinton did as well, and so did uh, Jimmy Carter. So it's a part of our nomenclature. But again, like with vouchers, tax credits, when the right moves with it, somehow it's wrong. But we, for us, we see it as a broader context of the human condition. And this is not just the United States. This has been going on as long as we've talked about Western history and even before that. It's interesting because we're very comfortable speaking about the content of American character and who we are. And, you know, oftentimes we hear this is not who we are or this is who we are. However, on an individual level, there's a great mm-hmm. discomfort around speaking about content of character. And I think understanding the context is extremely important as a school should not have the hubris of believing they control that, uh, that creation altogether by themselves. So understanding where our students are coming from, where our educators are coming from is, is going to provide us a lot of insight as to you know how we move forward here. Civics is an extremely uh, frustrating area because oftentimes uh, it feels like we have a fair amount of consensus that we ought to pay more attention, we ought to invest more, we ought to have our students learn more, we ought to bring people together around this issue, but we fail to make progress and meaningful conversations around in advancing civics education, it, it's often distracted. Um, you know, currently more interest in debating critical race theory than actual policies that would advance civics in our classroom. And you wrote an article about bridging racial and political divides. And, you know, what rings true to you when thinking about making informed education policies to actually advance civics um, in this current environment? We tend to think about civics in the wrong way, in the, in the way that we also do economics. So here's an example. When you hear the term economics, people think uh, arithmetic and money. When economics uh, at its core is a study of decision-making and human values. When you hear the word civic, you think about voting every four, two or four years, or you think about walking in a neighborhood with a sign. And that's part of it, but civics at its core is really about human behavior and its involvement in societal good. And to think that voting once every two years or once every four the years, floor. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is the floor. Mm-hmm. That holding elected, holding, holding elected officials accountable is not a one-day activity. It's 364 days after you vote minus leap year. Um, and so I'm on the board of iCivics, which is uh, the country's largest nonprofit focused on using technology to teach civics to children. And so I look at this as using technology as a way of getting beyond the partisan divide. And unfortunately, I think we're more hyper-partisan today than we were when Reagan was elected uh, back in the 80s. And part of that is driven by a um, economic challenges in the U.S. and trying to figure out who's to blame, which party to blame for that. 
And then number two, following um, the, you know, the killing of um, George Floyd, but even before that, going to Trayvon Martin, there's been a really big push for us to look at race and equity in ways that make a lot of us uncomfortable. And so between that and the economic uncertainty, people are coming together and say, we've got to vote people in or out of office, and then things will change as if the other 364 days a year um, does not matter. So um, talking about uh, civics as a way of saying, let's have a dialogue about schooling. Uh, what should we teach? Unfortunately, so much of civics now is partisanship. It's teaching what the other party's doing wrong versus the science of government or the art of leadership. So I'm involved in different conversations, you know, I support the work that you're doing. Um, but that article was just really a heartfelt attempt to say, we're kidding ourselves if we think that we're gonna really talk about civics if we are in civil to each other on social media, in uh, public uh, uh, venues and, and other places. Why do you think we are so prone um, as a society to to push back at the wrong points? And I don't want to sound naive as if this polarization and partisanship is, is something new, right. but perhaps there's a greater sense of isolation during this pandemic, uh, perhaps the rise of of media and social media that we, we don't have a, a great grasp on in terms of, you know, our research and theory and practice. You know, what is it that makes us, you know, so just jump on issues that aren't actually the issue at hand? Well, maybe one thing to do with it is uh, our changing view about faith traditions. So if you look in the 80s when Ronald Reagan is elected uh, president, I guess twice, and you look at Pew and they would you know, evaluate people on their involvement in religion, it was pretty high. Well, if you look at the same Pew study today, we have one of the lowest number of people saying they belong to one of the three Abrahamic faiths. In fact, there's one study to show there are more people who identify with Wicca than who are Presbyterian. And so in one aspect, religion, which used to be an anchoring uh, institution in American culture and values, seems to be something that's losing its influence on a newer generation of people. So that could be one thing. I'm not saying it's the only, but it could be one. Uh, a piece of the civic infrastructure of our country. Exactly. I mean, we go back to look at the work of uh, Tocqueville. In fact, one of uh, Tocqueville scholars is in our office uh, here at the Institute. But if you go back and he, you look at uh, his tour of the U.S. and his talk about social institutions and what you know role they play, that's important. Um, if you take a look at the loss of trust in government. So again, if you look at polling data, uh, people hold Congress, uh, the White House, or people in Washington, D.C. in very low esteem compared to the military, uh, compared to education, compared to people in nonprofit sector. Now, you can look over the last 30 years, and there were some ebbs and flow. But the consistency in which we hold people in Washington in low esteem has been really consistent, uh, consistent through the past, you know, four generations, uh, four presidential administrations. So I think a loss in belief about what Washington can do is a challenge. Uh, the third is, you know, the changing of the family structure. Now, I didn't grow up in a home with a mom or dad who were married, and yet both of my parents uh, love me. I've got three daughters, uh, two with my wife and one for a previous relationship to a mom I wasn't married to. And so I've lived this 
both as a dad and as someone who grew up in this. You know, every man who was in my wedding, except for one, was raised by a single mom. And today, minus one, all of them are married. Um, all of them have professional degrees. Most of them have children. And so the family structure and family structure has also been an important component of institutional values for the U.S. If you go back to the Moynihan Report, you know, over 50 years ago, uh, there was, a, it was, I think the subtitle was, you know, the crisis of the Negro family. Uh, at that time, nearly a third of the black families um, were raised, families were raised by a single mom. Today, the white number or the white number of white children who are raised by single white mothers, that percentage is higher than it was for blacks back then. And so the family structure, uh, the inability to want to at times let dads be involved in the child's education for welfare uh, right purposes or other things, I think that's a, a challenge. You know, naturally, you know, race and class uh, always you know play a factor in this. But those are just three things that, from my research, I see as being part of a let's say a smorgasbord of things to pull at when we try to figure out what's happening to us today. Yeah. And I think that also relates to, you know, the discomfort that you alluded to before, right? That reckoning with this data is not something that makes us comfortable as a, as a society and as a country. So I think many people want to shy away from that and look at other, other reasons and rationale. Mm -hmm. So a million dollar question here. And, uh, you know, if it was easy, someone would have solved it already. But how do we teach an honest, critical account of our history while promoting what President Reagan coined as an informed patriotism? We're struggling with this question right now all over the country. And I think that if we were to sum it down, it's, you know, there is a need for a more honest and um Mm -hmm. authentic account of some of the, the sins of our country, but also a need to teach something that brings us together and, um, you know, actually helps weave the American fabric. How do we do it? I go to a speech given by um, Thurgood Marshall. Um, at the time, I don't believe he was yet a Supreme Court justice, so he would have been an attorney at the NAACP. And he said in the speech that the same constitution uh, that was used to enslave uh, my great grandparents is the same constitution that I'm using now to make Brownlee Board of Education a reality for the great grandchildren of enslaved Africans in the United States. Now, yes, there were the additions of what some would call the Civil War Amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment to make that happen. But the point that he said is that, you know, using the Constitution or using the Bill of Rights or using the Declaration of Independence, when that, of course, was signed into law, um, you know, one out of four people in the United States, in fact, were people of African descent. We know that women weren't a part of that major conversation. We know that Asians, Native Americans, Hispanics who were in the United States weren't a part of it. But we're now using those same three documents to reshape how we make it happen. I then think about the speech that Dr. King had delivered in 1955 when Rosa Parks decided not to, uh, not to stand or not to get up. And if you go back to his speech, I think it was the Hope Street Baptist Church, you can find it online. In that speech, and he's in his 20s, he's quoting or referencing the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and talking about the importance of being American and being Christian and that we need to be true, as he would say later in the speech, true to what we said on paper. 
And so people who were living in the midst of segregation are talking about liberating themselves with the documents that were used to keep them in segregation. But there's also examples of someone like Abigail Adams. When we think about the founding generation, we often forget about the women. And so in 1776, when her husband, John Adams, is part of the founding generation, she said in a letter she wrote to him in 1776, that if we are to create uh, statesmen and philosophers and learned men, guess what? We have to have learned women. And she said, this may sound folly to some people, but I believe it, that we have to educate women. These are the ones who are going to help train the men who are going to become the leaders. And if you think you're going to have an educated, strong republic without learned women, guess what? You're fooling yourself. But then I can also go back and look at the work of, um, of Prince Hall and others who were in um, Massachusetts in the 1700s, who some of them, in fact, were enslaved. Some of them were free Africans. They were writing letters in the 1700s to the General Assembly or the base of the state legislature in Massachusetts talking about getting rid of slavery because it went against the principles of American democracy. They were writing in the 1700s letters to the Massachusetts congregation, I mean, Massachusetts uh, legislature, saying we want you to create public schools for our children because education is important. So there are a number of examples of women, enslaved Africans, free Africans living in a segregated society and others who've used uh, the same documents or the ideas of freedom, liberty, and opportunity to challenge the status quo. So when we talk about 1619 today, and when I was a school teacher 30 years ago, I talked about 1619 and the arrival of the 19, of the 20 Africans here in, in Virginia. But also not to forget that, you know, decades before you had Africans who arrived in St. Augustine, Florida. But we don't talk about them because that was a Spanish colony not an English colony. So I think there's ways of using national examples that we know about to serve as a platform or a template for us to show our own message. Because I tell my friends, if you think we're living in slavery today, go and read the dead diary of the Union soldiers who left slavery to join the Union Army to fight and read what people wrote about finding underground schools throughout the South. I'm just saying we're a much better nation in 2021 than we were in 1921 through our original you know, sins and challenges, they still exist. But to not think or to think that we haven't made any progress since then, I would say shame on us. I think we've made a lot of progress, a lot more to grow, to go, but I think using the Declaration, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution as a way of shaping that conversation is one way that I would go. Yeah, it's a it's a long struggle. And as Dr. King says, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I think right. we are uh, it, it sometimes is very hard to see the arc where, from where we stand. And oftentimes it uh, it feels like we, we need to push and lean on it more. You know, we are sadly out of time, uh, Gerard, but we always end Reaganism uh, with a question about uh, something about our 40th president. So I'd love uh, for you to share with us, what is your favorite Reagan speech? So that would have to be April 26, 1983. And it was his remarks on receiving the final report on the National Commission on Excellence in Education. And in that report, again, this is 1983, he talked about the importance of empowering families to have a role in the child's education. And in that speech, he mentioned tax credits. 
He mentioned vouchers. He mentioned education savings accounts. Well, we didn't have those things in 1983. Today, we have 25 voucher programs. Today, we have 22 tax credit programs. Today, we have six education savings account programs uh, in place. And so I just enjoyed that speech because I think it just laid a good foundation for the modern day parental choice movement. There was one uh, in the 50s and 60s that followed Brownlee Board of Education. Uh, I call that fear-based freedom of choice. That's the kind of choice that led to the white segregated academies, that led to the type of discriminatory behavior that you know I surely would not support. But what Wagon was talking about and what I support is liberty-based choice, the kind of gives opportunity for families you know, across the board. So I'd say that's you know, my favorite one because it kind of, it helps shape my understanding of his thoughts. But then I look back and say, wow, 2021 is that's 38 years ago. He was talking about what we have now. So Pretty prophetic, right? Yeah. Well, Gerard, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for the work and dedication um, that you've given on behalf of American students everywhere. And I uh, hope you join us again uh, for other Reagan Institute initiatives. Thanks so much and uh, look forward to our partnership.